On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are trying to figure out what in the heck is going on with the LRT negotiations. They seem to have gone into some form of, I don't know, something where now even the city isn't involved in a discussion and a negotiation about a transit system that will run right through the heart of the city. What is going on? We are going to talk about universities because a new poll has asked academics themselves from their own mouths which way do you lean politically? And you probably won't be shocked by the numbers, but you may be shocked by how chasmic the gap is between the two sides. We'll talk about that and whether this has any implications. And we're going to talk about whether or not superstar athletes should get special treatment when they do nasty things to other guys for which normal players would be suspended, but sometimes because they're great, they don't. Should they be? Should they be handled the same way as everyone else? We'll talk about it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I like to think that I have been following the LRT saga as closely as anyone over the last number of years. Maybe I shouldn't say that. There are people who have been, I'm sure, more fully invested. But, you know, I believe that I've kept on top of it as much as is reasonable. But I must admit, I'm coming close to waving a bit of a white flag here and admitting that I have no real idea what the heck is going on right now. Um, This project was started as an idea by the city. Then the provincial government got involved and decided to okay it. But now we have a private company talking to the federal government that might be talking to the province, which is now discussing a smaller project but has passed this job off to another subsidiary company of the province. And the people running the city where all this supposed to, well, started and were supposed to be involved are completely out of the loop and not being told anything that's happening. I I think that's where we stand. Let me bring in Ward uh, 4 or 5 Councillor Chad Collins. Uh, Chad, how are you tonight? Appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I I don't know if... if if there was a cold notes version out there, I think you nailed it. <laughs> okay, I was going to ask if I was close because it, it is getting a little complicated. Yeah, it is, it really is. And if and if there's a white flag to be waved, I think collectively across the community, I think we're at that point right now. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what negotiations are, are taking place between governments, and certainly you referenced Leuna, and, uh, you know, a, an absent member at that table is, is council. And... Well, how's that possible? How is how is it that the city that where this yeah. thing is going to run down the middle of the city? How is it that the city is now seemingly being boxed out of a project that it would seem to have relevance for? Well, I I think there's a there's it, it's not a secret at this point that there's not a lot of support on council for what's transpired in terms of keeping this project going. It's on life support, even if it's on that, it's it it you know be a surprise in terms of it somehow finding a way to to making its way onto Hamilton Street somehow over the next four or five years. I mean, we're talking about now double the cost for almost half the project. You know, it was originally between Stony Creek, Eastgate, and all the way to McMaster. We're now talking about Gage Park to McMaster. It was originally pegged at a billion, as you referenced earlier. Now it's anywhere between two and a half billion and and higher, you know, three and a half, five billion referenced by the Auditor General at the province, and so there's you know there's a lot of discussion in terms of what the operating costs are, and I think most people know that council. If I had to guess, if there was a vote taken tomorrow, there's there's not a lot of support to 
to keep the project alive. And most people in the last uh, couple of months, since the cancellation really by the province, have talked about making a better investment into our transit system for all parts of the city. I, I, I can't understand the fascination of sinking all of our eggs into half of a transit line. I mean, we were talking about a billion dollars before. Now, that, as you referenced, when you add a federal investment up to two and a half billion dollars for a bus line or a transit line between Gage Park and McMaster, you start to think about return on investment. And I think for most people in the city and most people on council, it's, um, you know, that return on our investment would be better invested into, uh, and those resources would be better invested into the HSR conventional transit system in terms of a citywide investment that uh, where all neighborhoods in all parts of the city would see some benefit. And so it's it's a political thing at this point, Scott, and, and my motion the other day to council to say, hey, look, <laughs> we need to bring the Metrolink's representatives as well as MTO into it because there's a lot happening here without our involvement and we need to be part of this conversation. And I hope there'll be a day soon where we can actually vote on this project and make it known to the province and the federal government that we're not supportive of half of a line for two and a half billion dollars and that the better investment would be into the conventional transit system that is the HSR. Well, okay, so you would know better than I because you talk to the people daily around the council table. You would have a better idea than I or anyone else listening how those votes might go if it came. Mm -hmm. But my recollection, and I, I could very well be wrong on this, Chad, but my recollection is that a number of councillors said at the time that this got its second wind or at least got pushed ahead, mm -hmm. that they would support it provided that, because it was originally going to be shortened, and then once they extended it again to Eastgate and said, okay, we'll put the extra money in. When that, when it said, if it's going to be shortened, we're out. If it's not from McMaster all the way to Eastgate, we are not going to support that. Am, am I wrong, or was that the position a number of councillors took at that time? Well, it had to be the full thing. You're very much correct. And the provincial process under the former Wynn government was a design, build, and operate. So they would put this project out to tender to a company or companies, that come to get that would come together and they would design the project, they would build it, and then they'd be responsible for operating. And so this was all really a provincially owned system. Um, this wasn't something like the city would own as like we would see the HSR buses on the streets where that's a that's a municipal asset. The LRT was going to be a provincial asset. And at the end of its lifespan, and, and I'll use our buses as an example, when our buses reach the end of their useful lifespan after 14 or 15 years, we're responsible to replace them. LRT was a scenario where the province, because they owned it, they'd be responsible for their replacement. We're now under a system where the province said, well, we're only in for a billion. And the question that we're asking is, well, who's, who's replacing these cars after, you know, these trains after 14 or 15 years, if that's their lifespan? Because the city doesn't have the resources to pay for the life cycle uh, maintenance or mm -hmm. the life cycle replacement costs. And so because they've changed the, the whole process related to how it's tendered and how it's operating, that changes the financial situation. And I think that's what's made a lot of councillors nervous. Certainly, I know our staff are taught, they have a lot of questions in terms of um, what's the city's requirement in terms of operating and or capital. And it all goes back to the original concept, which was the city wasn't really required to pay for anything. We knew there'd be some cost to the city. We were going to lose a lot of parking revenue from meters that were lost in the downtown. We knew that there was some fire suppression, some trucks that we were required to purchase as a result of this. 
and there were some other costs. We knew that there would be a cost of about $6 million or, or, or between 6 and $8 million. I'm sure those costs have changed in the last couple of years. But it was nothing to do with replacing the cars, operating the cars. And so that's where, you know, the questions, that's what, the, what our questions are right now, sure. Scott, in terms of asking Metrolinx to come in and we need some answers. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chad, a couple days ago, Judy Partridge was not the only one, but Judy Partridge said it was embarrassing that the city has been left out of that. Is that a fair word? Yeah, I think Judy Judy was bang on in terms of her assessment. Uh, we have negotiations taking place between, and to be fair, this is the provincial recommendation to the federal government. You know, they essentially included Hamilton's LRT project in with four Toronto projects uh, to the federal government asking for financial support. And um, to be clear, there's been no provincial communication to Hamilton since they've come out with their revised plan. And so we haven't had a chance to speak to the province. They've unilaterally gone off and made their funding request to the federal government. I'm not certain that a majority of my council colleagues would agree that we need $1.4 billion from the federal government to fund the LRT project. And I think if we were given the choice of a substantial investment from the province and or the federal government, all eyes right now would be focused on conventional transit, and that is the HSR. So I think it is an embarrassment that the province is off making these overtures and these requests of the federal government on our behalf without consulting with us. And I also think it, it's an embarrassment, as Judy referenced, that um, you know there are other stakeholders, if you want to call them that, who are involved in these negotiations, and we're not at the table as well. Well, let me ask about that because Leuna is one of the companies. And look, I don't want to fire any barbs at Leuna. They are doing, I think, what they think is being a good corporate citizen, and they're willing to participate. So we don't want to we don't want to be criticizing or dismissing that. Correct. But under normal circumstances, if there was a project that involved the city and a private company was involved, would a private company be able to have negotiations with the federal government without the city granting permission or giving a a, a nod or whatever, like it, th- this doesn't sound like it's sort of the normal way of business being done. It, and maybe it is, but it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think back. It, it, I don't think it's the normal process that we we're, we're accustomed to dealing with. I, I can't blame Leuna. I mean, Leuna's look, they've always looked for investments here and, and they're sure. trying to, to garner provincial and federal investments here to create jobs. Um, they themselves have created investments here as a union, right? They took on Leuna station, they're into some residential developments here locally. And so, you know, Mr. Mancinelli is, he's a Hamilton booster. I can't blame him for looking for work. For no blame. His, no, for absolutely his, not. For his members. However, um, it is a, it, it, it really is the city's decision to make. And so I, I think if there is a conversation happening with Leona, the province and the federal government, the city needs to be at that table. And it may not be LRT that brings jobs and investment to this community. It may be bus rapid transit and electric buses and enhancements into the current HSR system that brings economic uplift and jobs to this community and and or other transportation or other federal infrastructure projects that might bring jobs to not just Leuna members, but skilled trades across the city and across the greater Hamilton and Toronto area. So I, I'm not opposed for to the, the province and the feds making those substantial investments here in Hamilton. I think Councillor Partridge, who is critical of this current situation, and other councillors who've made those criticisms feel the same way. Um, you know, there's there's everyone wants what's best for Hamilton. And I think there's maybe some disagreements, Scott, in terms of 
what that plan involves and, and what and where and when those investments should be made and by who. Is it your belief that because the proposal that it seems is now being talked about where it could be a, an altered view or an all, a shorter route uh, unless things go back, but because things may be different, is it your view that the city that city council should have to vote on this new idea again, or does the old vote still stand? No, I believe it, the, the project has substantially changed. It needs to come back to council at some point in time. I think what's, what we're all cognizant of at the city is that, you know, we don't want to lose the provincial commitment. Premier Ford has been very clear. A billion dollars is available to Hamilton. You know, before he talked about it could be transit uh, as it relates to bus rapid transit or LRT. Most recently, he's only talking about LRT. So when Metrolinx and MTO come to council, I want my question would be, you know, is that are those resources there for us for other transit investments as the premier has previously committed? And with the federal government, it would be the same question. If we're not on for LRT, what kind of commitment are you giving Hamilton, much like you've given Kitchener, Waterloo, Toronto, Ottawa, the list goes on in terms of where transit investments have been made by the federal government. Hamilton is quickly becoming a have-not city because we haven't seen those, those investments. And I think it's incumbent upon the prime minister and his cabinet to make those decisions as it relates to investments here in Hamilton based on what Hamilton wants, not what other people want. Councillor Chad Collins, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If I said to you, which way do you think the majority of academics at universities in this country lean? Do you think more of them lean liberal, left-wing, or do you think more people on university campuses are conservative or right-wing? Again, we're talking about the professors, the instructors. I think you probably have an opinion and it's probably right. I'll tell you, uh, we can, we can know this. In fact, we don't even have to guess. We can know this thanks to a new report from the U.S. based Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Now, despite them being based in the States, they talked to a whole bunch of Canadian academics and found 73% of social science and humanities academics identify themselves as being on the left. Only 4% said that they identify as being on the right in the political and philosophical spectrum. I know a lot of you are saying, well, duh, this is not exactly breaking news. This is exactly what I would have thought. Well, fair enough. Uh, I think a lot of people would have expected this. Professor Christopher Dummett is a professor of Canadian history at Trent University, host of the Canadian History Podcast, 1867 and all that. Fantastic name for a podcast. He joins us now. Professor, thanks for doing this this evening. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk about it. Well, you would have guessed, I'm thinking, even if you had never seen these numbers or no poll had been done, you probably would have guessed that the numbers, maybe not these exact numbers, but the, the general theme, correct? Yeah, no, this is this is what you would expect. What's really great about this research, though, is that there's been a lot of polls on the U.S. and U.K. and other places, but there really hadn't been hardly any polling on Canada. So even though I could say to you, and, and I would have said to people, yeah, I think this is this is it. Now we can definitively say, yeah, we know this. And we've got some really even astounding numbers. I, I would have guessed it, but these numbers are, are perhaps even more dramatic than, than even I would have guessed. And that, that really helps us if we want to, you know, to, to do something about it. Well, so do we? And this is the this is the million dollar question with this. It's probably more than a million. Universities are big business these days. But um, does it matter? We, we have these numbers, but not every statistic really means anything. Does it matter that the imbalance seems so huge? 
Yeah, it matters in lots of ways, right? I mean, it matters because the, sh- the study also showed it didn't just show the imbalance. It also studied the kinds of discrimination which happens uh, because of these different political viewpoints. And it basically found that basically people on the right and the left are both equally happy to discriminate. It's sort of a, it's a free-for-all in that sense. But what happens when, when an environment like the university is so heavily skewed to the one side that the effect is that there's kind of really kind of pervasive and structural discrimination against anyone even, you know, you know mouthing, arriving a conservative viewpoint. And this has all kinds of impacts uh, all, all the way down through the system on, on individuals, on their careers, uh, on their ability to get things published, to get grants. Uh, it has, you know, even bigger things, you know, society-wide. It really has an impact on what kinds of knowledge gets produced, what we think we know, and, and, and what, what we know, uh, what, what, whether we actually know it. A whole, a whole bunch of different levels that has an impact. Okay, so let's. We're going to talk about the students, and we're going to talk about the professors, because there's two different parts here. You said about yeah. the 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 work they can do. Do you believe that there are studies or research papers or science that isn't being done because either departments or entire universities would be fearful of doing it because they'd be under pressure from one political side? Yeah, the studies showed pretty clearly that there's a lot of self self censorship that happens. Uh, so that's part of it. So if, if you know those few conservatives or people who aren't on the left that are in universities, basically will a lot of them will avoid uh, even you know, writing on certain subjects for that reason. Um, the other thing is that it's also that when you know I, you know when someone's writing about say poverty for example or you know any kind of topic, basically the. You know, Every human is subject to kind of confirmation bias, which is basically that, you know, we, we tend to we, t- we tend to, to latch on to information which which confirms what we we think we already know. Right. Um, and the universities are supposed to have this process called peer review, where it's everything that we say is true is 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 reviewed by you know experts in the field. Uh, and the trick is, if all of those experts are of a certain political persuasion, peer review isn't going to work. Uh, that the kinds of questions someone would normally ask from one perspective just just won't get asked. And so we could we could have a whole bunch of people saying, you know, we think we know, we understand what you know what, how to how to help with poverty, what causes poverty, but but re- in reality, we, we won't actually know. For the students on this one, uh, I'm wondering, and, and you alluded to, you're going to reaffirm your position on this. Does this mean that a generation or maybe more than one generation of students who have gone through university have been solely exposed to one political or philosophical viewpoint so that the students who are coming out of university have basically been only exposed to left-wing thinking which I would think for a lot of them would mean we're going to produce more students that come out being that, or is that too simplistic and unfair to students to say that they are subject or, or could turn into the left wing, you know, or turn that because they've heard that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. There's actually kind of mixed research on whether whether students actually pick up any information at all from professors. So there is that (laughs) issue. but but there is a real seeping out of knowledge from universities in a bunch of ways. Sometimes it's you know particular people pick it up. Sometimes they go through graduate school. Sometimes it you know it gets picked up in royal commissions and government reports. So it has a really big impact. Students students will be impacted if they feel they themselves can't speak on things or or be exposed to ideas. So that's a, students are definitely impacted. Um, but I think really it's it's that they yeah you know, they can pick up these ideas, think of them as truth, not have a sense of the 
you know, of, of, a, of a broader debate. I mean, on some issues, there, you know, there's, there's a clear, uh, you, know, uh, you know, two plus two equals four issue, although even in some circles, some people are starting to dispute that. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you know on, on a whole bunch of issues, it's not always clear exactly, you know, what's right and what's wrong. And, and we usually benefit from a kind of, you know, pretty elaborate, um, thoughtful, discussion uh, where we're exposed to different viewpoints. And it's pretty clear that in, especially in the social science and humanities, where this actually counts the most, um, that isn't happening, certainly not as much as, as it should be. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Professor, where this now, so we, there's the background, where this begins to get difficult, if you're trying to sort through this, is that we have in many ways now, universities have now institutionalized a lot of things that would prevent this from being different. So the, the people who would align themselves or say they are conservative, if you want to have a discussion about certain things and someone in that class says, that offends me, well, it's now institutionalized. You're not supposed to offend anybody. So how do we, you, you've essentially told the people, those 4% on the right, you're not really welcome to state your view or have a discussion about these things, haven't we? Yeah, it's a real danger, I think. And, we're, you know, we're seeing so many different instances of it, of this kind of cancel culture, and especially that use of the word harm being kind of weaponized uh, to sort of prevent people from, you know, speaking viewpoints, which often are quite reasonable. But uh, but nonetheless, when someone invokes this phrase of harm, which is a really kind of often a quite dubious uh, uh, scientific notion of harm, uh, it, it really is really effective. The trick is, as you were saying, it's, you can't really, um, you know, once a system is so imbalanced, it's unlikely on its own. I have some hope, but it's unlikely on its own that you could expect people to, to reform themselves because if those are already in the system, that they are probably have an advantage to keep it that way. We can st- certainly still kind of promote, you know, promote the idea of kind of, uh, well, I would say small L liberal values, liberal not being left wing, but liberal as in individual rights, freedom of speech. And, and we, we should really promote those values. Right. The traditional also- liberal education. That's right. The traditional liberal education, you know, liberal in that sense. And yeah, that's, those are pretty important values, but it might be that, that that's not enough. And, and I'm increasingly thinking that you know, there's probably room for some careful, thoughtful, but important you know, regulation of the university sector at a, a bunch of different levels to make sure that those in the system are actually, you know, essentially o- obeying the law and upholding these values of, of academic freedom and free speech. Let me let me create a scenario for you. I thought about this today when I knew I was going to be talking to you, and and maybe th- this this was the immediate thing that came to my mind to illustrate whether or not this poll makes sense, and why I think it does. If I walked onto a university campus and got in front of a class as a professor, like you do all the time, wearing a T-shirt that said "proudly communist," would anybody call me on that? I doubt it. Probably not. If I walk up to the front of the classroom as a university professor and I had a shirt on saying "Make America Great Again." I guarantee you on most campuses, people would go crazy about that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually know for a fact, because I, I know some professors who wear communist, not that particular shirt, but that, that, that kind of thing and other similar things. So, it's, I mean, that's certainly true um, that, that that's the case. And, and, and equally, and actually this survey showed that, um, uh, it actually showed that, that, I think it was in, in the Canada, it was either three in 10 or four in 10, Canadian academics said that they, they, they would purposely discriminate against someone who openly admitted that they were a Trump supporter, that they would not hire that person. Um, so, you know, that's, that's pretty clearly discriminatory, and that, and that clearly is a problem. 
there's a real irony here. Uh, and I don't know if the people who did the poll or anyone on university campuses noticed this, but universities are among the first places that, and I don't blame them. I don't have a problem with equality, obviously, and diversity. I think those are good things, but they would scream loudly for those things to be implemented. We want to make sure there's equality and diversity, but I don't know that they don't have a blind spot here for equality and diversity of thought. Yeah, and actually, that in, in some ways, although it kind of depresses me, it also makes me somewhat hopeful, because I think in all this talk about diversity, which is pretty pervasive, and there are some good reasons for it, I think, um, I think there's a really good opportunity to include uh, thought diversity and viewpoint diversity within that framework. It's, you know, it's one thing if, if, if people, you know, look different or have different, uh, you know, races or ethnicities or sexes, but if they all think alike, um, that doesn't actually, you know, help, help, helps in some ways, but, but it's definitely not enough, I think. How... You can't, though, can you put out a high, when you're hiring, we see with public jobs now, it says, you know, we we would love it. I don't even know what the right wording is, but if you are a minority or this or that or the other, because they're trying to encourage those people to apply. And I think, again, that's a very good thing, but you can't put in there conservative as well, can you? I mean, that, that would be, now you're you're hiring people on something that is probably illegal to even ask you what your view is. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky. In the social science and humanities, it's usually pretty clear based on the research someone does. It's not always clear, but it's often quite clear. Um, I, think it, I think it would be useful to say that they welcome political diversity. I think having a statement like that would be a, a mm. sign of you know, showing that there's a culture in which that's welcome. But I, I think there are other things that could be done. For example, I think you know, a lot of research gets funded and you know, publications get uh, uh, pu- published and actually jobs get posted that are essentially... You already know that someone who's going to do that kind of work has to have a certain kind of political viewpoint. And I think it would be really important to have a kind of culture and really regulations in place so that you can't post a job. Um, you know, a common thing to, to do this is to say critical studies, critical studies in X or Y. Critical studies essentially means it's a particular kind of left-wing perspective on something, and you know, quite a radical left perspective on that. And you will find jobs which are specifically targeted towards that group of people. And I, and I think that you know, we really should do away with that kind of creating programs which, from the very outset, already assume a political perspective. And those kinds of regulations would be really, really helpful. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about it today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Professor Christopher Dummett, uh, Canadian history professor at Trent University. And again, you know what? Some people are listening, I'm sure, saying, well, what's the problem? There's no problem here. Maybe there's not, but I think that in most areas, we would say if we want that equality, that diversity, that difference of opinion to bounce things off each other, and 73% to 4 says something is going on. Something is going on that maybe we should be looking at and saying, do we have a full spectrum of thought on university campuses so that students who are there are getting a broad perspective or is everything they're hearing coming from the same point of view? And I don't think that is supposed to be what universities are all about. I don't think so. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Just got off the air after doing his sports cast this evening. Is now ready for an evening of fun and frivolity and more work. But hopefully a little of the latter before getting, or the former before getting to the latter. How are you tonight? Yeah, are you going to just put me on the uh, the Weber grill and roast me? <laughs> why Why would I do that? What would I roast you for tonight? What have you I done? I don't know. Who knows? It could be a million things. 
You know, you nah. never know. You never know what comes up in someone's past or you know what I mean? Well, what are are you here to to confess things to us? Have you come with a barrel full of confessions to give on air? Is that what you're doing tonight? I say nothing. <laughs> you are you are you are as as pure as the driven snow. There are no skeletons or confessions from Bubba. There people could dig for years and they'll never find anything on you. Stop lying to your fine listeners. <laughs> Well, okay. Speaking of bad behavior, I was going to get to this later, but since you've given me the perfect segue here, did you have, I'm sure you did, but I, uh, when I say, did you, I'm talking about the other people listening. Did you see the Alex Ovechkin spear yesterday in the middle of the game? Another guy on another team was bugging him. And so he took his hockey stick that has, he knows how to use a hockey stick. He's one of the greatest hockey stick wielders in the history of the league. And he drove the point of his stick into his opponent's baby-making apparatus in a way that was vicious. And Bubba, I watched that last night. And you know, in the modern NHL, when they don't stand for a lot of stupidity, even though I think sometimes these suspensions are too light, they don't stand for things like whacking guys in the head or doing things that are really dirty. I thought... Alex Ovechkin just cost himself at least a game or two suspension. They gave him a $5,000 fine, which is like me spitting in my hand and washing it down the sink. Like it's nothing to $5,000. This to me is the Alex Ovechkin prize that you're Alex Ovechkin. So you can do what you want. and No one's going to penalize you. Well, I, I, w- I wouldn't say that it's Alex Ovechkin and they're not going to do anything. I just think that's a matter of what we call star power in sports. Um, when you oh, are- sure, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I just I wouldn't put it just straight under Ovechkin. I would just say that when you're one of the stars, you're one of the top five stars of any league. You are held to a different standard. Uh, whether you're you've done something good, we're gonna we're gonna if you've done something good, we're just gonna rave about how great you are. And if you've done something bad, you'll never be held to the same. Uh, you know, the accountability level will be much different than say. Like, can you imagine if? Uh, I'm just thinking here. If uh, Zach Pierre, Ronaldo, Pierre, Pierre Engvall of the yeah. Leafs, like did that, like where he'd be sitting for three games. Yep. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I did see the spear, I thought, "Oh, Ovi's going down for a game for sure. Like that'll be a one gamer slap on the face. You know, you sit down, feel shame, you move yeah. on." But yeah. that's not the case. Yeah, you're right. Five thousand dollars. I'm going to guarantee you that he's got at least a suit that's worth $5,000, and his wife may have a, a, a pair of shoes that are worth $5,000. I bet he's got a pair of shoes worth 5000 I mean, look, it, it the, the problem here with this to me, besides the star strata, which I, you know, I, I get, I understand that it exists. I don't always agree with it. But if ever there was a year, Bubba, that you were going to say, we're going to try and change this a little bit, because one of the risks you always run is Bubba O'Neill decides he's going to take his little son to a hockey game to go see Alex Ovechkin because that's the guy your kid has always wanted to see and you just spent a fortune to buy tickets and suddenly the league says, oh, he's not playing tonight because he got suspended. I get that they are conscious of that kind of thing and it's bad for business. But when there's no fans in the stands, this is the year that you could have started to push that back a bit and push against it and say, yeah, you're going to have a penalty for this. Because we don't have to worry about the business model as much right now. 
uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the right call is here. I mean, I get that. I get what you're saying there. And I mean, there's a certain business model to it. Um, you know, I've also heard opinions, which, you know, I just don't think are fair here. <laughs> now, mind you, you know, Ovechkin, veteran guy, you know, could end up being the all-time leading goal scorer in National Hockey League history. And he speared a rookie at Trent Frederick, right? Uh, I've heard as much that, you know what, he's a rookie and that's the way it goes. Um, um, he was diving, which I don't can't believe you could ever, you know, take some type of estimation of taking a shot to the man zone and say that you're diving, right? <laughs> like, who are you to say that he was faking, right? Like, how do you know, right? Um, but yet the rookie player in this situation will never get the same rights as the veteran player, especially when he's an all-time great. And I guess, to me, that's, an all-time, that's, a, that's a thing in sport we have seen in the National Football League, times where people have grazed the helmet of Tom Brady, and that they get 15, you know, yard penalties for, you know, and, and continue drives for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I've seen quarterbacks of much less vintage that uh, take shots to the head and no call, right? So, and, and I mean, the NBA is famous for not not with the same kind of thing. We're not talking about violent things like this, but is famous for, you know, letting certain players take extra steps on their drive or whatever and not get called for traveling. Yeah, I mean, that yeah, that that's the, the yeah. Okay. So th- there is that when you're a veteran and you, when you're a star, you get that kind of thing, but I can't think of another league where an infraction, where a suspendable offense gets looked the other way on as much as the NHL does. I mean, look, Tom Brady sat out how many games for deflating a football that he may or may not have actually deflated. Um, you know, like th- the NFL will suspend guys no matter who they are, if they've done something wrong. Um, the, the, the NBA, if you get into a fist fight with someone, which is sort of their equivalent of the most egregious thing you can do, you'll get suspended. The NHL seems to me to be the only one, well, baseball sometimes goes a little soft, but there's still suspensions. The NBA, the NHL seems to be the only one that has decided if you're a star, you almost have to decapitate somebody before we're going to give you a suspension. Yeah, that's uh, that's the rules, right? And I think you just got accepted. If you're a Washington Capitals fan, you're feeling pretty good. But if you're a, a Boston Bruin fan or a supporter or part of the coaching staff or part of that organization, you're scratching your head and, and wondering what you got to do to uh, or Frederick, you know, who's trying or, to yeah. find his parts. <laughs> you know, that, it was if if people haven't seen it. Uh, people know what a spear is. I mean, yeah. he, he, uh, Ovechkin I'm talking about now, he brought his stick up into the, the region in a way that was intended to hurt. Let's just put it that way. Oh, it's fierce. It was, it, it it was definitely fierce. Yeah, it was, it's um, out about that. It was not good. It was not good at all. And, and all right. you, know what, you know what's odd about it too? And here's another thing to, we, we see this in not just hockey, but many other sports. Now, Frederick was being, you know, Frederick was, he had sort of challenged Ovechkin to a fight earlier. He had been a bit of a troublemaker, causing problems, uh, and, and directed a lot of his, uh, you know, anger, I would say, or, or or you know vitriol. He, he he showed that he wasn't afraid of of Ovechkin. So we should we should applaud him for that. But at the end of the day, you know, again, it's like the veteran rules, right? It's just kind of the way it goes. And you know, again, 
we've heard this saying too, and I know you and I have discussed this in previous you know discussions here, that in hockey, players, the players, not always the ref, will police themselves, right? Used to be. Used to be less now, but yes, for sure. Used to be absolutely. You you want to drive Wayne Gretzky into the boards back in the day? You are going to have Marty McSorley, and you're going to have Dave Semenko, and you're going to have a number of other guys lining up to turn your face into applesauce. So feel free to do it. Just understand that the nuclear bomb is the that we're ready to press the red button if you do it. Mm-hmm. And you know. Uh, I'm torn on this one because I, I'm I'm not wanting the league to go back to that kind of stuff, and I and and this Bubba, this is actually the you know you bring us it's a great point you make because you bring us back full circle. If the NHL did a good job at disciplining players, nobody would talk about the days when you had this nuclear deterrent of self policing because you would say I don't need to do that because the league is going to look after this stuff. If you believed that suspensions were going to follow and they were going to be appropriate and and predictable, you would say, I don't have to then drop the gloves and punch that guy's face in because he's going to get two or three games. The league is going to do it. When the league seems to refuse to do it, on the one hand, they're saying, we don't want you to be the old Broad Street bullies. On the other hand, but we're not going to do anything to prevent it. You know, it's funny. You bring up a, a, an interesting point. Um. We we watch boxing, we watch UFC. Um, we do something now which I thought five years ago wouldn't be a popular thing, and we watch women in in MMA. And not to say that they shouldn't be competing, I actually watch it. I quite enjoy it. With this said, could hockey go back to the Broad Street bully days? No. Like I'm not talking about going into this crowd and beating up, you know, like the Boston <laughs> Bruins. I'm not talking about like that and Terry O'Reilly taking a shoe to someone's head. But but if you know, like hockey's a physical sport, we, we there's a, still a lot of old timers involved in the sport. You know, Brian Burke is a, is a is a vice president. You know, uh, Rutherford has been around for a long time. He he's probably going to get back in the game at some point. You know, there's a lot of old, you know Brendan Shanahan's plus fifty. You know that played in the game where there was a lot of you know stuff going on. Could and never happen. Could, could we go back to you know no. fighting in sports? We couldn't because of, just because of the litigious side of things. That all it would take is one player because guys are so big now and they're so fit and so strong. It would take one player to die on the ice. I mean, we saw it happen in senior hockey and the lawsuit, the all the other stuff, and the effect on the game to the fans. and No, I, I, I can see no way, but the NHL, we don't need to. We don't need to. If the NHL discipline, and for whatever reason, the NHL always picks former players to be the head of the discipline department, mm-hmm. and they have shown consistently that they are horrible at that job. You don't bring a guy who is coming from the culture of the game to do that job. You take someone who isn't from the culture of the game, who can look at it dispassionately and objectively who is in charge of discipline. That's what should happen. But if the but NHL look, would... But hockey look at it differently. They yes. think that if you if you take someone that previously played the game, they understand the nuances and they understand how players feel in certain situations and why maybe that guy snapped back with a, with a spear or why that guy, you know... Um, might have run them from behind because they feel like they're more relative to the players of today. No. Well, I'll tell you the other. I'll tell you the real answer. the The real answer to this 
and I, I've said this for a long time and I believe this, it, it sounds ludicrous. I believe this wholeheartedly. It's not silly at all. You, the NHL says to the players association, we are out of the discipline business altogether. You, your players association, the players union, you represent all the players on the ice. So if a guy spears another guy in the groin, you represent the spearer and the spearee. And so, you know what? You sort out what the penalty is because you know what? Yeah. Alex Ovechkin is one of your guys, but the other guy is paying dues as well. So are you going to tell your other member we don't care about you and we don't care about your career. We don't care that you just about had your testicles chopped off. No. So let the players association deal with this stuff. And if a guy runs another guy from behind into the boards and gives him a dirty hit and breaks his leg and he's out for a year, let the players association decide what the appropriate penalty is, knowing that one of their members is now on the sideline and may not play again. Now what's the fair penalty? I think, honestly, I think that is the right way. Let them. And if they decide that we believe there should be no suspensions ever, well, good luck to you because now all your own members are going to be in the hospital. So good luck to you. Try to explain that and why I'm paying union dues. I guess the only comeback I would have is that, you know, a guy like Ovechkin's got many more years of paying into the union. <laughs> you know what, though? It, it would be it, it would be really interesting how and, and like how they would do that because you would have an awful lot of other players saying, wait a second, why are you letting a guy off the hook? Because there are very few of those superstars. The vast majority of the players' union are the guys who he speared, who would say, wait, that's me. Why am I paying union dues if guys like me aren't going to be protected in any way? It's tough. Tough, tough call there, Scotty. I mean... uh, let me switch over. We only have a minute or two left. Well, a few minutes left. A couple of minutes left here. I want to ask you about this because um, you and I are of the generation... And I'm talking about anybody who's between, let's say, 40 and 60-ish. We are of the generation that has been trained. It's been beaten into us through exposure to expect that anytime something goes well for the Toronto Maple Leafs, looming around the corner is something terrible that will happen that will ruin a season. And now we look at a team that is unquestionably, I think, the best team ever in our lifetime. Since the last Stanley Cup win in 67, I don't think there's been a team that, well, they've never had the start in the, in the, in the franchise history. There's never been a start like this one. Do you feel, do you hear from people, do you get the sense that people are waiting for the Wiley Coyote anvil to drop on their head? Or do you think people are really believing that this Leaf team is really this good and something good could be happening? Um, two things quickly. One, I don't know if it's. I, I mean, I know you, you, what you're saying there about being a you know a fantastic team. I'm not quite ready to give them that label yet, and that's because they've only played six teams. I just can't do it, Scott. Unless they played the Boston's and the Philadelphias and the Pittsburghs and the you know the defending Stanley Cup champions and you know the heavy teams like Vegas, I can't give them that title yet. You know, so to me. Some of those teams from the early 2000s and the 93, 93, 94, those years are still better than this team. With that said, they can only play who they can play. And what they've done has been unbelievable. It's been fantastic. I will say that I always thought from the very beginning that there's this Toronto team 
should win this division hands down. I thought they were by far the most complete, best coached, uh, most talent front to back. I will give people, uh, to your exact question now, I will give the Leafs a whole lot of credit because they've put up the, this point total and have the best league, the best record in hockey. And, you know, you talk about, you know, when will the disaster strike? Well, they've gone through disaster. They've played three goaltenders just in this unbelievable humiliation, in my opinion, of the Edmonton Oilers. They had an opportunity of doing something that's never happened before, and that's beating a team three straight games with three different, in shutout, with, in shutout fashion with three different goaltenders. Some of their high-end talent that was brought in here to study the team with veterans and Thornton and Simmons, they've been hurt in and out of the lineup. They've suffered their best shutdown defenseman, in my opinion, and Jake Muzzin, you know, got a stick near, right near the eye and had to sit out a couple of games. So I give them a heck of a lot of credit because I don't know what else can go, what else more can go wrong. Austin Matthews has missed three games. So I don't know what else more can go wrong, but yet they're resilient enough that they still have the best record in the league. Yeah, oh, look, I, I, everything has gone right for them. And I think that is why for a lot of people, again, we've been conditioned this way. If you've been around this area for years, if you've watched the Leafs, because that's what gets the most highlights on TV and most coverage on radio and newspapers, you have been conditioned to expect that the steak dinner you are being served will somehow have gone bad and it'll be a delicious dinner, but in the morning you're going to be horribly sick with food poisoning. I mean, that's that's being a Leaf fan. Yeah, like as, as Brian Burke used to say, the 18-wheeler is going to fall off the cliff. Exactly. And that's what we have always experienced. There has never been a Leaf fan who hasn't experienced that if you are under, say, 60 years old. I mean, even go back to the best years since the Cup win, which would be the Pat Burns years, probably, when they played Gretzky in the semifinals. And look, the weird Gretzky high stick to Doug Gilmore that wasn't called by Kerry Fraser. I mean, huge heartbreak. If you're a Leaf fan, there is always the expectation something is just about to happen that is terrible. And it's a weird feeling for a lot of people right now that that hasn't happened. It's but, a really but, weird feeling. But, but, but don't you think that, that like, those things have happened? Because there was a time there, I'm like, when, when Matthews went crashing into the board and, he, and they showed him, I know I've used the video several times him, of him, you know, in pain on the bench. And, like, they have to wrap up his wrist. And I'm like, oh, here it goes. Here it is. It, you know, here's the turning point of the season. But, but they keep winning. And then, yeah, and no, then Frederick the, Anderson goes down, and then I'm like, okay, that's okay. Jack Campbell's a good enough backup, and it's like, oh my goodness, he's down. You know what? I I, I have to admit, I thought if, if you're going to ask me the, to be really honest here, once I saw Michael Hutchison going into the net, down to their third goaltender, I go, it's over. Hutch, Hutch, <laughs> Hutch is not clutch, right? But all of a sudden, it's Hutchison 2.0. The guy played well, got a shot yep. out. Yeah, no, you're you're right. Bad things have happened. I guess what what we're we're sort of parsing the verb here. Bad things have happened, but it hasn't led to bad things happening. They've still won, and that is the unique part. Because is in the past, a good team. It is. Well, it is in the in the past. Bad things have happened, and it's led to horrible results. Here, bad things have happened, and they just keep rolling along. And you've listed, and I don't even think you covered all the guys that they've missed and all the things. So, it's um. 
It is a weird experience for Leaf fans. I, I don't know. We got to go. I don't know that Leaf fans right now truly are able to enjoy this the way that fans of some other teams might be able to because they don't know how. Because they just, the expectation is what's coming. And it's so, you know what? It's, it's, it's an interesting one. We'll see. Of course, none of this matters, Bubba. None of this matters until they win a playoff series or two. I mean, they, they can have, they can win every game the rest of the way. And right. people couldn't care less until they win a playoff series because that's been their Achilles heel. We will see. That's, that's when the Leaf fans are really going to be thinking the anvil's about to fall out of the sky. But, um, well, we'll see. It's, it's, it's interesting and enjoyable and fun to, to watch because heaven knows we've had enough years as Leaf people around here and people, Leaf fans in our households and stuff where it's been horrible. It's, it's fun. It's, it's a new and fun experience. It is. It really, it, it is. I'm never a huge Leaf fan, but I, I, you have to say when the Leafs are playing well, just like the Raptors, are, it's fun, right? It is fun. We look forward to the games. You know what? People are going to stay up late when they normally wouldn't and watch them crush Vancouver because they're not, they're no good either. Right. But here's the well, thing. It's, here's yeah, the thing. it's the same. It's the same as the right. You said the Raptors, we got to run. It's the same as the Raptors in that playoff run, the championship run, the Raptors had, they played Orlando in the first round, right? And they lost the first game or two. And it was like, oh, here we go. And then they win and they go, okay, well, then they play Philadelphia. Was it Philadelphia the second round? Philadelphia, yep. And then it was like, well, they're not going to be, especially go to game seven. Oh, they're not going to win. Oh, the Kawhi shot's not going to go. Oh, and everywhere along the way, there's this, because of the history, there's this sense of pessimism and the sky is going to fall. And each time it went the right way and you were like, huh, never saw that coming, but it's kind of fun. They were down two over the Bucks. There you go. He's fine. And then you got Golden State, and you're like, well, we're never beating Golden State. And then they lose two of their best players. I don't think that's the only reason the Raptors won, but that's usually what happens to the Toronto teams. It was different and invigorating to actually see something happen to the other team for a change for fans around here. Anyway, we'll see. Well, we're, we got another two thirds or roughly of the season to go. So may as well start enjoying it because we haven't seen this in 50 plus years. So. <laughs> Enjoy it. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Thanks for doing this, sir. Always appreciate it. Just wait till they play Boston in the final four. <laughs> That's an evil, evil laugh. Go back to work. <laughs> now we know what the skeletons in the closet are that you weren't going to tell us about. You're really a secret Boston Bruins lover like Bill Kelly. Back to work. We'll talk That's to funny. you soon. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.